right, hello, this is Megan and E.R. Anders uh, with the final word. It is Friday, September 20th, and today we're going to be focusing on Donald Trump. He's all over the news, obviously, for um, some whistleblower complaints. But before we get into that, Dad, I want you to talk a little bit about your um, experience in the intelligence community because I think that that's relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. So what's your, your background? Well, <clears throat> I'm a school-trained intelligence analyst. What does that mean? It means <laughs> that I have a master's degree in strategic intelligence to start with, mm-hmm. and I've worked uh, and was trained in Army intelligence in the military and has worked as a contractor uh, supporting uh, the Department of Defense in a number of different capacities. Okay. All right. So you're pretty well entrenched in the intelligence analysis community, I would say, right? I wouldn't say entrenched, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's uh, you know, <laughs> you've it's, got a, some, it's a very large community. You've had some dealings, we'll say. All right. So what's going on in the news this week? So essentially. Um, Democrats, probably Republicans to a lesser extent, are somewhat shocked. Um, I believe it was the Washington Post that broke this story um, about a whistleblower complaint that was provided to uh, the Inspector General of the House Intelligence Committee. And essentially what the complaint is revolving, um, nobody has really confirmed this information, but allegedly... A phone call took place on July 25th between President Trump and the Prime Minister of the Ukraine. And the thought is that um, Donald Trump had promised previously $250 million in military aid uh, to the Ukraine. However, he was essentially, allegedly, um, saying... I'm going to withhold this military aid unless you agree to investigate or you know get some dirt on Hunter Biden, who is Joe Biden's son. So what that refers to is um, Hunter Biden was on the board of directors for some natural gas company that's owned by a Ukrainian oligarch, and uh, this company was being investigated. However, the prosecutor was uh, being investigated or, you know, there were some concerns about his lack of um, looking into corruption in his own office. So in 2016, then Vice President Joe Biden was pushing for the dismissal of the prosecutor that was investigating his son's company. So Donald Trump is trying to claim that you know, Joe Biden was trying to protect his son in terms of getting rid of this prosecutor. However, Joe Biden was not alone. There are many other world leaders who were calling for this prosecutor to be dismissed, um, and he inevitably was. Um, However, what I think is the concerning thing is this idea that the... My mom's laughing in the background. So the concerning thing is that President Trump would uh, hold this $250 million um, in aid over the Ukrainian prime minister's head. Basically extortion, I I guess you would call it. Um, So fast forward to 2019. I guess this would have been August when this whistleblower makes uh, the complaint. And so normally what would happen is if 
the uh, House Intelligence Committee deems a complaint to be urgent, they would immediately forward it to Congress. However, in this situation, um, that was blocked by the acting National Intelligence Director, Joseph McGuire, who instead um, sent it to the Department of Justice, and they decided that it is not urgent and that it should not be sent to the Senate um, and that it would be handled internally. It's not like relevant to the intelligence community, this, that, and the other. Um, interestingly, I believe Joseph McGuire said that he got his orders from higher than the Department of Justice and higher than the Intelligence Committee, uh, which leaves very few people. The president would be one of those that could uh, order him to do such a thing. Um, so it's kind of a mess. So from your perspective, you know, as someone from the Intelligence Committee, what are, what are like the main issues here at play other than the obvious? Well, there's, there, there are a lot of issues, and some folks have talked about it. Um, some commentators uh, in the news media and uh, you come away with a feeling like there's two different sides. One side, one could argue, is, well, if the president does it, it's not illegal, mm-hmm. as we've heard Nixon's, before. Nixon's famous words, yeah. <clears throat> and then there, there's the, the, the thought that, well, um, the intelligence community, you know, they've got, their, they got a job, and this is outside, really, their, their purview. Mm-hmm. And that they really shouldn't get into this kind of policy issues and in the politics of it all. They've got to stand aloof mm-hmm. and outside the politics. And then there's there's the other thinking is that why is this such a, a mess? And they point to uh, the person who is sitting uh, you know in the Oval Office that this is actually a um, a crisis, yet another crisis. Mm-hmm. that, you know, made and minted in the, in the Oval Office. So the, then the question gets to be, what if, what do you do if, in fact, you believe, rightly or wrongly, that the uh, President of the United States just happens to be the biggest national security threat to the country? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no precedent for that. People say there's a lot of, of things about this current administration for which there is no precedent. <laughs> and one could argue this is one such. Right. Well, going back to your first point, um, you know, when then President Nixon, or I guess at that point when he gave that interview, he was impeached at that point, I believe. But he said, you know, if the president does it, then it's not illegal, Right. And so there's, you know, I think it's the Constitution that says that a sitting president cannot be charged with any criminal, um, you know, for for any criminal reasons. Um, So essentially that puts puts the United States in a really dangerous position, like you said, that A, this is kind of an unprecedented situation because I I don't know that uh, many presidents prior to Nixon have done anything that is so egregiously, you know, illegal. So the normal course of action would be to impeach the president. So then he's no longer a president and then you can move forward with criminal proceedings. Um, But I think that the Democrats are reluctant to do that because I think they're trying to put their eggs in. Well, 
you know, 2020, we've got an election coming up, he'll be out anyway, let's just focus on that. But I think that, you know, that's kind of a dangerous gamble, because you're assuming that, you know, what can Donald Trump do between now and November to really fuck this country up? And I think the answer is becoming increasingly a lot. And I think that at some point, they're going to have to step in and do something because the number of, of uh, you know, criminal acts, acts of obstruction are just kind of compiling and adding up and adding up. Um, and then the, the other point that you made that's a real issue is what role does the intelligence community have to play when it comes to um, sort of policing our own government? Right, because typically when you think about our um, our intelligence community, when you think of the FBI, the CIA, the CIA in particular, the Department of Homeland Security, they're looking at you know foreign adversaries. They're looking at uh, foreign sources of um, danger. But I think the biggest danger, like you said, is really coming from from the office of the president. So what? what can the intelligence community do? Because it seems like there's some very gray areas of checks and balances that's being played out in this particular scenario. Well, first of all, you have to look at the charter of both the CIA and the FBI. They have different charters. Mm -hmm. They play different roles. And there's been a great deal of discussion on why that should be. And that maybe that's a good thing. You don't want a secret service, uh, secret intelligence agency, you know, dabbling in or interfering in domestic politics. That, mm-hmm. that, that's one of the things that we've kind of made our, dis- our minds up about as, as Americans. We don't want a, you know, a secret service that is uh, involved in, 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 in domestic politics. But at the same time, there is a there's a gap between, I would argue, between what the CIA is chartered to do and what the FBI has to do. And it's, and it's in that gap that we find ourselves. And we don't have an institution or institution or some uh, uh, structure to, to fill that gap, to fill that need. And I, I make the, I've written a a white paper about that what we need, as a matter of fact, I wrote it several years ago, that what we need really is an American shin bet. We needed a real, honest-to-goodness domestic internal security service like the Israelis have that kind of can have a play in both worlds, both the domestic and the foreign with an idea of protecting the country from external threats mm-hmm. and and also domestic threats. And as we're seeing now with the Department of Homeland Security pointing out that domestic um, terrorism is a major threat to the very existence of our democracy, mm-hmm. that maybe the time has come for us to think about how we would fashion a domestic security entity that has the capability to uh, collect 
process and analyze information that may be of both domestic and foreign origin and then be able to act and have the authority to act mm -hmm. on their findings. And But even saying that out loud, I think in most Americans who may be uh, listening, that sounds very strange. That sounds dangerous. It sounds like something we don't really want to know about or want to do. And I would argue that it's time to make, have that discussion and it needs to be a public discussion. And I think, I believe, it would take uh, legislation. It would take restructuring of the intelligence community. And, and I anticipate that we're, there would be some serious pushback from both you know, the CIA, the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, the existing agencies. Mm -hmm. But it may actually take a crisis of the nature that we have not yet even anticipated. Or that's possibly happening now with Donald Trump. Well, I, I would argue that um, there's a lot that is going on that we just don't know about. Mm. And uh, I think it, it is premature and to say what is going on or not going on with Donald Trump. We're going to find, we're going to find out. There, there's hopefully. <laughs> well, hopefully it it's, comes not, to light. It's, it's not just hopefully. I anticipate that a good deal of uh, information is going to be revealed that is going to shock people. Mm. And it will, some people will refuse to believe. And it may be um, a source of considerable uh, turmoil and produce a constitutional crisis, the mm -hmm. likes of which we've not seen before. Mm -hmm. But that is on the, uh, uh, over the horizon, and it's too. And, and I would hesitate to even uh, speculate on what those things might be. And uh, but again, the question gets to be: Okay, once Donald Trump is no longer president of the United States, and we can have a nice discussion about how long that'll be, mm -hmm. or whether he will you know, decide that, hey, I like being president, I think I'm gonna stay a while, <laughs> regardless of what anybody else says. And there may actually you know, be people who would uh, certainly support that. But uh, that said, uh, that too would produce a constitutional crisis, the likes of which mm -hmm. the world has never seen before. Right. <laughs> Not to... Uh, uh, go too far into that, but um, the question is, how do we keep this from happening again? And that's mm -hmm. what I'm really talking about when the creation of a kind of an American shin bet mm -hmm. that can actually uh, intervene long before um, we reach a point where we find that we have somebody in a very high position of... Uh, where you actually start thinking, having people complain about their, you know, their security uh, uh, posture, or the the threat that they might pose, and and then you have the crisis like the one that we're going through now. We don't have the mechanisms to deal with it, mm -hmm. either institutionally or even legally, 
and that has to change. Well, let's talk about the Department of Homeland Security for a second, because I, I don't recall when it was created, but I do remember being sort of aware that it was a bit of a controversial thing, right, in the intelligence community. And my understanding of the purpose of the Department of Homeland Security was that it was meant to sort of coordinate and fill this gap between domestic and foreign. Is that not the case? What is the purpose of the Department of Homeland Security? I think Security? a lot of it came out of uh, the, the, the shock of uh, 9-11, 9/11 mm. and the fact that there needed to be better coordination between uh, the FBI and the CIA when it came to terrorism, foreign mm. terrorism. So and again, still not even the focus is not on domestic at that point. It fell under the purview of the Department of Homeland Security, mostly through a process of osmosis, and that you know taking this expanded mission, and people started saying, well, if if you're going to have an organization that's protecting us from uh, uh, foreign terrorists, well, what about our domestic mm -hmm. terrorists? And then, but again, um, the, I think the even the people in, who have worked, and I've known some folks who've worked in the Department of Homeland Security, a lot of it was trying to coordinate the, the intelligence sharing between and among mm. the various you know, members of the intelligence community, which includes the DOD, the FBI, the Secret Service, and I, I like to say a cast of thousands mm -hmm. that... Um, and we can have a nice discussion on how well they've been doing that. But the Department of Homeland Security is no shin bet. And uh, that's what we need. Well, and I, I think the other point that you make is, is valid in the sense that, like you said, there's no real, uh, there's no enforcing agency, which I think when you talk about that, I think that makes a lot of people nervous, as you said. Hey, Kitty. And brings to mind some concerns about, you know, Big Brother and all of this monitoring and that kind of thing. And, you know, there needs to be some level of separation. But, you know, typically the, the mechanism through which something like this is explored or challenged is through the legal system. And it would be through the Supreme Court because we're talking about a lot of constitutional issues. Um, however, it circles back to the issue that the Supreme Court is now kind of stacked with, um, you know, they're supposed to be neutral, politically speaking, but, you know, they're more uh, right-leaning conservatives. Um, so I think that going that route, they would be unlikely to support any kind of um, concerns or cases that are brought forward. Um, that would create something like this. So, you know, if you're trying to create an entirely new, I don't know what this would be, intelligence agency, intelligence service, like what would this even be considered? How would this go about being created? It would have to go through Congress, I would imagine, right? Right, there would have to be legislation and there mm -hmm. would be, you know, challenges to it. But again, I would argue we're not going to see the creation of, a, of a, uh, an American Shin Bet until there is a crisis uh, that, that is so outrageous 
then people will say that that's the only way we can protect ourselves. Like a Manchurian candidate situation? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which, again, I know I keep, like, alluding to Trump being, you know, the worst in the world and, you know, that he's doing all sorts of crazy stuff, but he's he's kind of like an unintentional Manchurian candidate. I, I don't think that he realizes that he is being played in this way, you know? He's, he's inadvertently... Um, doing things not even you know to because he's in cahoots with Putin I don't think but just because of the man's own sheer stupidity you know he's uh sharing these satellite images that members of the intelligence community are coming forward and saying I've never even seen this level of of sophisticated technology before so he's just kind of like flaunting our um you know intelligence technology he um, is having these phone conversations, allegedly, you know, where he's, uh, you know, promising or, you know, actually withholding foreign aid to others um, in exchange for dirt on his political opponents. I mean, it's really, it just seems like it's kind of out of hand. Sleazy. Yeah. Mom in the background, it's sleazy. Um, but the other thing that I was thinking about the other day is that I find it fascinating that the president of the United States doesn't have to get a security clearance. Is that true? True. What, what kind of sense does that make? What? Well, the, the, the cons- <laughs> What's the, the purpose cons- of that? The concern is, and again, and there are a lot of people who, who voted for Donald Trump would uh, take umbrage at you know, your line of uh, thought there, that uh, in fact Donald Trump is doing exactly what they sent him to Washington to do, that they knew exactly what his limitations or shortcomings, although they might not even call them shortcomings, that he is doing exactly what they want him to do. Which is what? And which is to um, shake things up, to change everything. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, because and he can do it because he doesn't have the uh, the knowledge or understanding mm-hmm. or, or even doesn't care to even learn what mm-hmm. most people who who work in Washington uh, understand uh, intuitively almost mm-hmm. because of their background in politics in government right. and in the law and the people who are who often support Trump you can ask them, and they'll tell them, "Yeah, he's doing exactly what we want him to do." Mm-hmm. And they have, and, and, and they don't, they don't care who he's talking to, or who he's, what he's <laughs> saying. And as far as they're concerned, as the minute he says something, whether it was previously classified or not, no, it's the not. minute he opens his mouth, mm-hmm. it just got declassified. To, whom, to whomever <laughs> he's talking to, that immediately declassifies. Yeah. Now, we can have a nice discussion as to whether that should or should not be, but again, that gets to be a matter of, of the mm-hmm. law, and it has, to be, it has to be worked through. Right. Well, one thing I will say in Donald Trump's defense is that through his political buffoonery, he is highlighting a number of areas that I think we need to take a harder look at. For example, when we're talking about impeachment 
and we talk about the Senate, in order to get any kind of legislation passed, you have to have a supermajority. So rather than, you know, 51 to 49, you have to have 60 votes. So you need to have a majority. And I think the original idea was that it would force people to work together across party lines uh, to have this consensus, but it's not really working out that way in, in practice. And, you know, specifically when there's a Republican majority and you're talking about impeachment, it's unlikely that you would get that 60 vote super majority. Um, so that's just yet another area that I think is being highlighted. You know, the issue of filibustering is the filibuster um, an appropriate senatorial tool at this point. Um, I think at one point in time, maybe it had a place, you know, very dramatically. It's it's almost shown as kind of like a like a noble thing to do if you ever watch like Mr. Smith goes to Washington and he like filibusters and he like passes out dramatically on the Senate floor. It seems like a noble thing to do. But in practice, when you see Ted Cruz reading, uh, you know, the cat in the hat like a dumbass, um, it's just sort of, you know, and no, it doesn't seem to serve its purpose any longer. And pretty much any piece of legislation that you bring uh, to the Senate, it can be immediately uh, destroyed through someone just saying, I'm going to filibuster this because then it's just done. You can't do anything. Mm. It's over. That's certainly certainly one way of, of looking at it. And I, I have to say, in all honesty, I look at it quite differently. Do tell. I think the, the, the founding fathers understood government. They un- and not only that, they understood human nature. Mm-hmm. And they understood the attractions of power mm-hmm. and, and how addictive power can be. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> what in the, when you have a, lo- a large government, central government, and there was a lot of discussion even back then about whether, you know, how centralized the government should be. Mm-hmm. So the idea is... I almost like to think that they wanted to make it hard. Mm. They wanted to make it... People say, well, nothing gets done in Washington. The government mm-hmm. doesn't. And yeah. And that was yeah, intentional. That, they wanted to make it hard. Mm. Because they realized that when the government makes a mistake, it affects a lot of people. Yeah. So you've got to have everybody on board. Mm-hmm. Even and even if you have to suffer through, and we we can make a nice discussion about that, suffer through stalemate and things appearing not to get done, things mm-hmm. that people were really passionate about. We've got to do this. That maybe if you look back in the American history. Mm-hmm. And through our government, and we can have a nice discussion about that, the things that were done by the government that we look back now and say, how could they have done that? How could they have moved a whole indigenous people and marched them, you know, for miles into what was at the time wilderness? And guess what? That was the, you know, the government did that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like it was just somebody woke up and said, hey, let's do this. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, 
for you, how many years did the United States were uh, uh, the African slave trade was legal, mm-hmm. and the government did that, right? And so, when you got to be careful, and, and uh, you got to be careful about making things too easy, right? Because when passions are high among the population. That People can easily can do sway. Some seriously bad things. Right. Well, that brings you to the world of like group think and group dynamics and, you know, into the world of sociology. And, you know, that's true. When groups of, when people, I don't remember who says this quote, but I always like it. Individuals are smart, people are stupid. Right? Is that from <laughs> Men in Black? Agent K. Agent K, Men in Black, yeah. So I think that that's true. I think that that's a very good point, um, that it shouldn't be so easy to pass legislation. Um, but I think that there's also a fundamental unwillingness at this point to work together between the Democratic and Republican parties. And I think that part of that is that I don't know that the Founding Fathers ever intended for your political party to be such an integral part of who you are as a person. For example, like people don't say, um, you know, I vote Democratic or, you know, I support the Democratic Party. People say I am a Democrat or I am a Republican. And it seems to form such a core part of of a person's identity at this point so that when I disagree with you on your politics, you aren't perceiving that as me disagreeing with with your political opinions you see that as me disagreeing with you that I'm Mm -hmm. attacking you as a person and Mm -hmm. I think that that's where a lot of the passions come into play and I think that that's a concerning just kind of element of how politics have uh, you know taken a hold of of people's lives in this country but there's there's many other people that aren't you know really politically motivated and that's fine Um, but you know, some people have, have questioned, do we need to have a legitimate third party? Um, you know, what are what are other options? Because the bipartisanship seems to be um, something that's holding us back at this point rather than pushing us forward as a country. I, I agree. And the, the, the issue is, and again, going back to the founding fathers, not all the founding fathers thought having a political parties was a good idea. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was a time when there weren't any political parties like we know them today. That that said, we're stuck with it. Yeah. You know, it is what it is. We are where we are. And again, it's going to take people like yourself thinking about and having these kinds of discussions and say, what do we need to do now? And that we have reached the point where people are beginning to identify to make their politics part of their identity. And that, and I would argue, and we can have this discussion as well, that the news media has exacerbated the problem. Mm-hmm. And, it may, and in fact, every time you look on, on whether regardless of which news network you're looking at, you just you have these two sides battling it out, mm-hmm. and 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 oftentimes they end up screaming at each other, and one could argue is that what we need to be doing screaming at each other, and again like you say, that when they disagree, 
you're not just disagreeing with their politics or or policy, but it's like you're you're um, you're denying their identity. Mm. That you are um, taking away their, and a lot of people are attempting to validate and verify their their belief systems, and that you are attacking them at at a deep fundamental level. Mm-hmm. And and I would argue, stop doing that. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just stop. Just stop. Just stop doing it. <laughs> and and again, it gets back to how how people understanding, and we need to we need to do this more. Understand just how people think, and how we how we respond to things. And I've said this before. Oftentimes, especially when you're looking at the news media, questions are asked, and people are are are, are questioned. And people, when they listen to the question, they're listening to, res- to respond. Mm. They're not listening to understand. And then say, wait a minute, let me think about this a minute. Mm-hmm. And not go with my immediate, instinctive reaction that maybe have, because of trigger words, be highly emotional. Mm-hmm. And really doesn't elevate the discussion or even get at the um, what are the the important drivers of whatever problem or, or issue that you're discussing and we've got to get, get we've got to get back to that mm-hmm. is to say wait a minute let me let me think about this let me uh, really uh, give it some thought mm-hmm. and of course uh, there are people who do that naturally and usually they're called Analysts <laughs> <laughs> who are not the people who are making policy or you know no leaders. and because again as I've said many times before we tend to think people are being genuine the more emotional they are about a particular right. topic or subject that they're more believable mm-hmm. and I would argue uh, we have to get past that if we're going to actually solve our problems and uh, having worked up on cop. Capitol Hill, in the in the uh, uh, as a journalist many years ago, you saw that happening, and uh, it was it was almost comical, in that when the cameras were rolling, you know, any politician would be pounding his fist and pontificating, but when the cameras were turned off, <laughs> hey, let's go get some lunch, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they were able to to talk it out and say, hey. You know, I'll vote for you on this bill if you can support me on this one. And said, "Yeah, I I think we could come together on this." Mm-hmm. And they worked it out. Yeah. But I would argue, in in, in with the, um, to agree with you, that now that is happening less and less mm-hmm. because of the intense polarization and the identity politics. And I would say by uh, worldview. Mm-hmm. There are two different worldviews that are vying for the soul of America right now. And um, one has a liberal base and the other has a conservative base. And they are trying to, in some instances, describe that conflict as a fight to the death. Mm. And well, like you said, a fight for the soul of America. Right. And sad to say, 
um, it may get to that. Hmm. And there's people who have actually said that out loud. Mm. And that there are people who shall go, and they will go nameless, who are looking for that to happen. Mm. There are people in the world today who would very much like to see a breakup of the United States. And they are actually working towards that. Mm. And if you don't believe me, you can go out on the Internet and find them. Well, I don't doubt it. And I think, you know, that that's my my primary issue with kind of bipartisan politics or this this framing of the world, because, you know, I understand that, you know, the human brain likes things to uh, be in categories like we categorize things all the time. That's why stereotypes exist. Stereotypes exist. Excuse me. Um, but I think that, you know, like you said, the media perpetuates this idea that everything is black and white it's you know good or bad and that's not really realistic because most of the world lives in shades of gray and I think that that's part of the issue that you know you're you're but you're you know you're bumping heads between these these two different ideas it's either you're liberal or you're conservative and there's nothing in between but I would argue that most people are somewhere in between. I don't think that the majority of people are, you know, staunch liberals or staunch, you know, conservatives. But I think that people are being forced more and more to veer one way or the other because that's the only thing that's being represented in the media. That's the only option that people really have. Well, part of it is, to, is part of the socialization process. One could argue we're being socialized uh, to think in, in either in either or. Mm-hmm. It's either this or it's that. We never think, well, maybe it's not this and it's not that. And maybe it's both things. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's neither. neither. But, we, but we're not taught to think that way. Mm-hmm. So it get it falls back onto it's either this or either that, and you see this played out time and again, in the in the news media and on social media, to a greater or lesser extent, when you have two sides, mm-hmm. when they put together a panel, you got you got two sides, right, and that's it. Well, and it's interesting because so, I'm working on my PhD in applied behavior analysis and. One of the the offshoot branches of applied behavior analysis is this thing called relational frame theory. And it has to do with language and the way that people learn language. And uh, there are a lot of theories that suggest that depending on the language you speak, that uh, determines the way that you think about things. And so because English is a very dichotomous kind of language and the way that we learn our relational frames, the way that things relate to each other, like when we're kids in school, we learn, you know, there's things are big and things are small. Um, Things are hot or they're cold, right? You learn, like, that's how you start to learn associations is this dichotomy um, of things in the world. And that's how we classify things. You know, it's white or it's black, it's good, bad, whatever. And I think, you know, because our language is the way that it is set up, that is the way that we process the world. But I think if you were to go to an entirely different country 
I think that they don't necessarily experience these same issues, or maybe they experience it to a lesser degree because the way that their language is set up in the first place is not a dichotomous-based system. It's something that leaves a little bit more area for the the in-between, you know, that, that third gray area. Absolutely, and you're 100% right. And language does play a huge role in the socialization process. Now, the question is, what do you do about it? Right, because we can't change our language. You can't change the language, but you can understand and recognize mm-hmm. the problem and address it. And it is being addressed by organizations that are beginning to focus on metacognitivity and actually teaching people to think about how they think. You know what I like about all of our podcasts, Dad? What? They always come back to your book. <laughs> and again, as, like I say, you know, as uh, pointed book. out in my book, The Age of Cognivity, uh-huh. we have to focus on those things mm-hmm. and, and begin to start thinking that maybe it's not this or that. Mm-hmm. That thinking, you know, dichotomously is way yes, to it's too limiting 19th century mm-hmm. classic mechanical thinking mm-hmm. and then and and then say it out loud yeah and then and again like i say they're actually in school there's an, there are organizations that uh, part of education is teaching metacognitivity mm-hmm. and saying as part of your curriculum you have to think about how you think you have to be aware of your individual personal prejudices Mm -hmm. you have to be knowledgeable about your cognitive biases and when you're thinking about things and not just when a, a you know academic project, but in your daily life, you have to say, "Hey, is am I reacting this way because I really truly understand the problem and issue, mm-hmm. or am I just reacting this way because well, that's just the way I was taught." Mm-hmm. And right. when I'm and my argument is, as we move deeper into the age of cognitivity. That is not going to be good enough mm. because we will be facing competition. If we are going to be the dominant intelligent species on this planet, the intelligent dominant entity on this planet, we're going to have to up, up our game. We're going to have to prove ourselves to be truly superior, especially when we reach a point where Machines are beginning to think for themselves. Mm-hmm. A frightening future. All right, well, I'll leave this with a lot to think about. As always, uh, subscribe to The Final Word and definitely check out my dad's book, The Eight. What is it? The Age of, Age of Cognivity. Excuse me. The Age of Cognivity, available Amazon. on Amazon and Audible. Thank you for listening. That is the final word.